Well, good morning. This is the Lou Rockwell Show, and how great it is to have as our guest, Dr. Peter Janney. Peter is a graduate of Princeton. He uh, has a PhD in psychology from Boston University and an MBA from Duke. He's here today at, to talk about his very important book, uh, Mary's Mosaic. And I, uh, Peter, this is such a well-written book. I mean, it's so interesting. It could be a, a wonderful novel, and, but of course, it's all true. And uh, uh, let me remind everybody of the title of the book, Mary's Mosaic, The CIA Conspiracy to Murder John F. Kennedy, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and Their Vision for World Peace. So Peter grew up in uh, Washington, D.C. in the 50s and 60s, the the Cold War era. His dad was a high official of the CIA, and uh, his family uh, mingled with a lot of high officials of the CIA, people like Richard Helms, James Jesus Angleton. Uh, William Colby, just uh, he, he uh, thank goodness, decided not to go into that world himself and is helping expose it and uh, tell us the truth about a very important aspect of it. Really, Peter, it was, the, uh, it was a coup, wasn't it? I mean, the Kennedy assassination. It was a coup of the worst people in the American government, and of course, it continues to reverberate to this day. I know, Peter, in, in, in your new book, you got to uh, depose Lieutenant William L. Mitchell. Mitchell was the famous runner on the towpath at the time of the uh, killing of, of Mary Pinchot Meyer. And you've discovered that he was connected to the world of intelligence and had lived in an apartment complex that had uh, known CIA safe house apartments in it. So what did you learn from talking to him? First of all, Lou, thank you so much for having me. It, it, it's a pleasure to be with you, and, and I'm a great supporter of your work. And yes, uh, you know, I <laughs> I thought my my work was was over with this book after it came out in April 2014. But it was only a couple of months later uh, that someone pointed out to me. I think it was an obscure journal uh, article that had been written by Mitchell, who who was you know a PhD engineer type at that point, and the way. I, I, when I looked at the citation, he mentions his address uh, in Arlington, 1500 Arlington Boulevard. And I said, my God, that could be him. So I immediately pulled my research team back together. I, I, you're probably aware of this guy, Roger Charles. Uh, he's portrayed by Dennis Quaid in the movie Truth uh, that Robert Redford and Kate Blanchett starred in uh, last year. He was Dan Rather's chief uh, research person. And I brought this to Roger's attention. He said, wow, this is this is a major potential breakthrough because we thought Mitchell was dead. Uh, you know, at, at the at the end of the first before the first edition went to publication, I assumed that Mitchell was the assassin of Mary Meyer and he wasn't. Uh, ultimately, I would discover that it's pretty clear he was part of the conspiracy but he had one job that day, and that was to frame Ray Crump, which he did very, very successfully up until the time of the trial. So as I swung back uh, into action in the summer of 2014, I found out where Mitchell lived, and uh, I showed up on his doorstep in, in August with a copy of my book in hand and, and knocked on his door. When he opened the door and, and saw me and saw the book, he became immediately hostile and belligerent. Uh, I, 
I actually secretly recorded our uh, interaction because I just felt like it was absolutely essential to document, you know, that this confrontation took part. What what I didn't realize is, and, and which a couple of people had told me before I did this is, do you understand your life is going to be in danger once again? And uh, I realized while I was talking to him or while he was shouting at me, that he could have easily just pulled out a gun and shot me and and that would have been that would have been it but you know i have just been on this guy's trail for years and if there was any chance in terms of getting this right at that particular moment that was it and that was when this new saga began that resulted in the third edition of Mary's Mosaic to appear in, in late September Wow, tremendous. And let's go back and, and talk about why you think that, I mean, there could be many reasons that they wanted to assassinate Kennedy. Uh, certainly the CIA didn't like him. He, as we know, he threatened to uh, tear it up into a thousand pieces, uh, like a piece of paper and scatter them to the wind. So what? why was Kennedy assassinated? Who did it? And why is his mistress, Perry Pinchot Meyer, important to us? Well, I, I think it, you know, after 53 years uh, from as we're coming into November 22nd next week, I think we know a great deal more about what took place than what, the, of course, the Warren Commission gave us. It didn't give us much. And what it did give us was really a ruse. Uh, I mean, there was no evidence whatsoever that Lee Harvey Oswald fired a rifle that day or was on the sixth floor of the Texas National School but the depository shooting at the president. None. So, you know, when we, during the last 50 years, I, I think there have been a number of people, particularly people like Mark Lane, Jim uh, Douglas, who have really come out and shown us that the entire national security apparatus wanted to uh, get rid of uh, Kennedy uh, starting in 1963. This is where he turned away from his own national security people. He wouldn't listen to what the CIA or the Pentagon was telling him. And he struck out on his own to, in a sense, forge a new kind of presidency. He turned away from the Cold War and became an ardent proponent of world peace initiatives. And that is certainly demonstrated by these secret letters that he and Khrushchev were writing back and forth during this time. You know, I think the the Cuban Missile Crisis alone left him so despondent, left both these leaders despondent uh, in, in terms of what actually could have happened. Had not cooler heads prevailed in terms of JFK and his brother, Robert, uh, you and I would not be sitting here talking about this right now because we probably wouldn't be alive. We we did not learn until 29 years after the Cuban Missile Crisis for the very first time that not only did the Russians have medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba, uh, th- these were the strategic weapons with nuclear warheads attached, but they also had an additional 102 battlefield nuclear weapons in addition to these missiles, 80 of which were cruise missiles with Hiroshima-sized warheads. And the instructions to the commanders of these missile batteries had been given. 
they were told that they had permission to use these tactical weapons if a U.S. invasion were to take place. And they, particularly if they, they couldn't contact uh, Moscow. And of course, that's what was about to happen. There was about to be a U.S. invasion. Even, you know, Robert McNamara on the most dangerous day, October 27, him, he himself believed, as did other civilian advisors, that they'd, they'd become resigned to the fact that there would be some sort of an, uh, of an invasion. Luckily for all of us, that did not take place. But even 29 years after the fact, McNamara and other people in the defense establishment were just caught with their pants down. I, I mean, McNamara actually cried on Larry King Live the night he was on. Uh, I mean, there were tears coming down his face when he was on the air to discuss this reality. And it, we were, I mean, talk about the most dangerous moment in all of human history. This was it. Wow. And just as an aside, uh, <laughs> we've just encountered people who uh, don't mind at all threatening a nuclear war against Russia again. Exactly. And of course, the U.S. put, as we, we found out, of course, much later, Jupiter missiles uh, right on the Russian border in Turkey, which led to the Russian missiles in Cuba. Right. So this was a, and Kennedy, to his credit, of course, pulled those missiles out of Turkey and Khrushchev back, back down and we're all alive. We're all alive. And, you know, had JFK lived, I think it, it's very clear he would have won re-election. And, you know, he and Khrushchev were planning a number of initiatives to promote working together, collaboration, world peace. Uh, I mean, in, we, we forget that in November of 63, shortly before Dallas, he was at the United Nations giving a speech that basically said, look, we are going to go to the moon, but we're going to go to the moon with Russia. We're going to be partners in this endeavor. And so this, I think, had it taken place, uh, would have been a true symbol of the end of the Cold War. And that was just one of a number of things that JFK uh, was up to. Of course, we, we had this legendary American University commencement address where JFK comes out of the closet, so to speak, and declares himself a peacenik. You know, I mean, he challenges the American population and the entire world to start thinking peace, to examine for people to examine themselves internally to, and, and ask the question, what is keeping you from believing that we could have world peace? So, you know, during that speech, he also introduces the fact that he's going to undertake a limited nuclear arms treaty with Russia, the first of its kind. And less than three months later, the Senate ratifies the treaty, all behind the backs of the CIA and the Pentagon. They were not included in this endeavor. And believe me, that made them absolutely furious. And they decided to kill him. I mean, to what extent was the Pentagon, I know that you, and I think quite readily put the finger on the CIA, uh, were aspects of the Pentagon involved in that as well? My examination stops at the doorstep of the CIA because logistically, 
they were in control of planning it. I would say it's very clear now, given David Talbot's new book, The Devil's Chessboard, mm, which I book. thoroughly recommend anyone who wants to understand the Cold War era to read. But it's very clear that Alan Dulles was the project manager, quote unquote, for the assassination of President Kennedy. And so they, the CIA had the logistical support and, of course, the overreaching intelligence to set this whole plan in motion and make it happen. You know, it's amazing to think that uh, had Kennedy lived and had uh, he cooperated with Khrushchev in the, in the way that you're outlining, uh, how many people has the U.S. killed in its wars since Kennedy was assassinated? How many millions of people have left their lives destroyed, their lives taken, their lives destroyed, their homes destroyed, their countries destroyed? Um, and that's just one of the effects a horrific effect, but just one of the effects of the assassination. Absolutely. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. was correct when he said the United States is the most violent country in the history of the world. I mean, he didn't pull that out of left field. He, he was basing that on, you know, his own understanding of history and, of course, what was starting to take place uh, in Vietnam. But But this is why, you know, as citizens today, we we must make sure that our history is told accurately. And in order to do that, I think we have to tell it ourselves because the struggle for memory and history is a living thing. It's a constant work in progress. And it, it's an ongoing task that never ends. And, and this is why each generation has to wrestle with the history of what came before and then ask, in whose interest does this history serve? How does it advance a legacy that it serves? So, I mean, if we go back to the 1960s, we look at the power of the peace movement that took place at that time. The peace movement successfully challenged the entire national security apparatus, including the CIA and the Pentagon, on the battlefield of memory. And it is really precisely this kind of battle that is taking place now, that the, the forces in our culture that stand for denial, which have created a kind of historical denial that we must overcome now. And this is, you know, this, I think, given the recent election, is going to be uh, one of the most important parts of people like you and me in, in our age bracket in, in terms of wh what we end up doing for the rest of our lives. Peter, tell us about, um, you know, your book is called Mary's Mosaic, and that's Mary Pinchot Meyer. Uh, tell us about what you think her importance was and why it was so important for them to assassinate her as well as Kennedy. Well, let's go back and, and just remember who Mary Meyer was. You know, she married Cord Meyer, who, after he came back from World War II, really, you know, transformed himself uh, into a peacenik. I, I, I mean, he really felt that he had made a mistake in going into World War II. He, he personally, he was wounded. He came back. He had a lot of time to think about it. Uh, but he was part of this whole movement in the late 1940s called the United World Federalists. Uh, he was very much in support of the United Nations that took that was just coming about and taking place post-World War II. But Cord 
got off the rail. I think when he saw that he was not going to be able to achieve this kind of structure that would help the world deal with impending potential world war conflicts, uh, he got quite depressed, actually, and I think he became alcoholic at that point. And then he became seduced by Alan Dulles, who also seduced my father, in in a sense, attracting a lot of these post-World War II, very intelligent, quite well-off financially, people who, who wanted to do something different rather than just step into the usual conventional family business, something like that. But Cord Meyer, uh, when he went into the CIA, almost immediately was put in touch of this uh, operation called Operation Mockingbird. And of course, this really upset uh, Mary to a great extent because Mockingbird was, in a sense, a usurpation of journalism. It wasn't, in fact, the CIA having the kind of influence with all the major media outlets where they could plant stories, where they could shape opinions, and in a sense, not give people the truth, but give them a, the, the, the media pieces of propaganda that would, in a sense, in, in, in many senses, scare them, particularly, you know, about the Red Scare, communism, you know, Russia, they're bad, we're good. So Mary was aware of, you know, what the early CIA was doing. And of course, it, it, it started to wreak havoc in her marriage with Cord, and they ended up getting divorced in the late 1950s. And it was about this time, very soon after, that she reconnected with JFK. She had known him when she was a teenager, but uh, he was not really interested in him. But when she saw what he was trying to do and, and running for president, I think they started spending more time together. And, of course, their relationship became romantically inclined. This was not a kind of typical JFK bimbo moment. Mary was a very substantial person, and she challenged Jack Kennedy on many fronts. And I think he saw, knowing how wounded he was, particularly around intimacy with women, that Mary might be the kind of woman who could really help him heal uh, from the wounds that, that he was holding with regard to his, his view of women. And so I, I defined this relationship in my book as what I call a relationship of redemption. It's an opportunity for JFK to really start to live and think differently about what it would be to have a real partner in his life. He ended up telling his special assistant, Kenny O'Donnell, that after he got out of the White House, his plan was to divorce Jackie so that he could be with Mary. She was one of his primary allies. Uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis and afterwards, and I think helped him turn more ardently toward the possibility of world peace initiatives. So that's uh, that's why they wanted to kill her. And how did they kill her? Well, they wanted to kill her because after the Warren Commission came out, she made it very clear uh, that, that she had she had read the paperback abridged version when it came out in late September, and she realized at that point 
that not only had there been a huge conspiracy in Dallas, but that there was now a second conspiracy, a second cover up taking place in terms of fooling the entire population of the world about what had happened, uh, really, truthfully, in Dallas. And she felt like it's time for it was time for her to stand up and tell the truth about who she was, about who she was in terms of her relationship with Jack Kennedy and what the CIA was doing and, you know, all the little ins and outs that she and, and the president had had talked about. And so that was going to be her plan. And I think it was at that point they needed they realized that, look, this is a serious person. People are going to listen to her. She's she is very well respected in Washington. And when it comes out that, you know, she was the president's mistress and given who she was in terms of her own education and intelligence, I think it presented a huge obstacle and they decided that she had to go. And so how did they perform this uh, this murder? Well, the way they did it was they had her under surveillance. They realized uh, that. Because they had been so successful uh, in Dallas, they were going to use kind of a carbon copy paradigm for this. And in watching her daily routine, they were aware of the fact that typically she would go to work in her studio uh, in the morning hours and along about noon. Uh, she would typically walk down into Georgetown and stroll out the Chesapeake and Ohio towpath out to a place called Fletcher's Boathouse, which is about a mile and a quarter out of Georgetown. And then she'd turn around and walk back. So I think they made a decision that that would be the place uh, to take her out. They would try their best to make it look like a random act of uh, violence. I think uh, the way I... I put together the pieces here is that, of course, they were out there very, very early that morning uh, waiting to see how the plan would unfold. They saw this guy, Ray Crump, walk out there with his girlfriend. And I think they decided at some point, okay, there's our Patsy. Uh, let's go find someone who can, you know, uh, that we can dress up to look like this guy, whether we have to paint him African-American or not, but we see the clothes uh, that he's wearing. We They had the technical services division out there working with them. So it wasn't that difficult in a matter of a couple of hours to make some carbon copies uh, of, of Ray Crump's clothes and, and dress someone up to look like the person who was standing over the body uh, after she was shot. She was shot twice. Uh, it was clearly the work of a professional sa assassin, given where the bullet entries were. And of course, you know, as we learned during the trial, uh, it, it was very well set up. But what they didn't count on was this African-American woman attorney by the name of Debbie Roundtree. She realized that Crump was being railroaded. She realized that Crump couldn't have possibly committed this, this murder. So she went to work and just hammered uh, the prosecution's case during the trial. And uh, she was very successful, but her biggest mountain to cross during that trial was the testimony of Lieutenant William L. Mitchell. And uh, had 
she not been as exacting as she was, I think the jury might have been persuaded because Mitchell's testimony was very similar to that of Henry Wiggins, although she had discredited Henry Wiggins' testimony earlier in the trial. But then along comes William Mitchell and basically substantiates everything that this guy Henry Wiggins said. And uh, it, it, it was touch and go. Uh, right up until the very end. But the jury came back and just realized, look, uh, we've got the FBI report. There is no forensic evidence linking Ray Crump to the body of Mary Meyer or the crime scene in what what was described as a fairly bloody crime scene. Uh, so they the jury couldn't buy it. They acquitted Ray Crump for lack of evidence. Well, it was a great moment. And uh, they never came up with another patsy to blame for it either, did they? No, no. The, the case uh, remains officially unsolved, although the case is closed uh, because they were never willing to do anything further. I have talked to the D.C. police uh, about the case, met with them several times, showed them the evidence uh, that I have that that you know, certainly points to the very likely possibility uh, that Bill Mitt, William Mitchell was, was you know, uh, another kind of a patsy in terms of a false witness during the trial. But the political climate in Washington, I don't think will ever allow this, or at least for the immediate future, will ever allow this to go into any kind of reexamination at this point. And certainly just just as uh, Operation Mockingbird under a different name, or maybe it's just business as usual, uh, continues to this day in the media, uh, uh, by and large, is in the pocket of the CIA and the Pentagon. Um, certainly the Washington, D.C. police must be under the thumb of the CIA and similar agencies as well. I, I think that that's very likely. You know, we, we forget that Bill Casey... Uh, the director of, of the CIA from 1981 to 87, at the very beginning of the Reagan administration, w was in a meeting with all the, the cabinet heads. Uh, and, you know, he made a statement during that meeting, and it is as follows. He said, we'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false. Now, that's from a CIA director, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that that comes on the heel from what the late Bill Colby said uh, sometime during his reign, where he said the CIA owns everyone of any significance in the major media. Now, there's never been a substantiation for that quote. A lot of people think that he may actually not have said that, but it is true uh, in terms of what came out in the Church Committee and the House Select Committee on Assassination, it is true that the CIA had a number of people, as many as 2,000 journalists of one kind or another, infiltrating all the major media news outlets. No, and it's, I think it's clearly the, they have all their people embedded, as they might say today, in uh, television, of course, newspapers, um, the internet, internet sites, and they are uh, a very bad bunch. But Peter, you're one of the heroes in helping expose these creeps, and as you say, explaining to us our real history, 
why it's so essential if we hope to uh, avo- avoid some kind of horrific war in the future, um, as well as all the little wars that they enjoy running. So I want to just uh, highly recommend this this uh, third edition, this this with all kinds of new information of, of Mary's Mosaic, the CIA conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy and Mary Pincho Meyer and their vision for world peace. So Peter, uh, thanks a million for coming on the show. Thanks for all the work you're doing and continue to do. And all I can say is to you, uh, keep it up. Thank you so much, Lou. It's great to be with you and your readers and listeners. Bye-bye. Well, thanks so much for listening to The Lou Rockwell Show today. Take a look at all the podcasts. There have been hundreds of them. There's a link on the LRC front page. Thank you. Thank you.